people often ask us how best they can support Spiked. And the answer is by giving a regular donation. Just £5 per month can make a massive difference to our work. For less than the cost of a London pint, you can make sure our pro-freedom, pro-democracy message reaches more and more people. All that for just £5 per month. If you'd like to chip in, it's really easy. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. Thanks for your help. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and as ever I'm joined by Spike's Deputy Editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, coronavirus, Labour's free speech problem and the hashtag Be Kind. This is the worst public health crisis for a generation. We must stay at home for a week if we get ill and avoid contact. The measures aren't as severe as those being implemented in other parts of the world. Schools, colleges and childcare facilities will close from tomorrow. We will be suspending all travel from Europe to the United States for the next 30 days. The World Health Organization has officially labelled the outbreak of coronavirus or COVID-19 as a pandemic. The number of cases outside China where the virus originated has increased 13-fold in the past fortnight. A number of countries have taken drastic action. The whole of Italy is on lockdown, where bars and restaurants have been ordered to close for two weeks. The United States has banned travel from 26 European countries. The UK has, for the time being, taken a much less drastic approach. At the time of recording, the government has moved from the containment phase of its strategy to the delay phase, For this section, we're also joined down the line by Dominic Standish, regular Spike contributor, who's in Italy inside the lockdown. Hi, Dominic. Good evening. But first off, let's go to Tom. You know, what are your initial observations on this? Well, it seems like this week there's definitely been a kind of step change, certainly in the UK, insofar as how seriously this has been treated. Um, as we're recording, um, we just got finished watching the press conference that Boris Johnson and the chief medical officer and the chief science officer were giving. So we're still kind of absorbing that. As you say, there's been a shift here from the containment phase to the delay phase. And it's striking, I think, really, if you look at the kind of comparisons, really, in terms of how different countries are dealing with it. I think it's not necessarily how drastic the measures they're taking, because in certain cases, you do have to take drastic measures. Certainly, um, Korea and China have been able to bring their infection rates down or the growth of infection rates down um, through some pretty extreme measures. But I think here and now the focus has shifted more to Europe and to the West more broadly. You really see, I think, the um, importance of letting cooler heads prevail in this situation and making sure that action is transparent and proportionate and led by the evidence. I mean, there's the situation in Italy, which I know Dominic will speak to, but I think if you just contrast over the past 24 hours and what we saw from Donald Trump um, and his statement from the White House and what we've seen over here in the UK, so you've got the US where there's been just an incredible amount of incompetence in terms of getting a grip on this. Trump himself sending out very strange and incoherent messages constantly talking about you know the flu's worse and all this kind of very um, mm. unhelpful kind of information and then in response to a lot of these problems a lack of availability of testing kits and all the rest of it just does this very ham-fisted authoritarian move in terms of banning flights um, from the Schengen area um, no one really seems to think this is a sensible policy certainly not at this point in the crisis 
over there. And even when he was trying to communicate what it seems like quite a foolhardy policy, making mistakes, you know, his yeah. team actually had to clarify, even though he's reading off a teleprompter, that this wouldn't actually affect trade, that US citizens would be exempt from it, mm. etc. Um, so just a real hash of it over there. In contrast, over in the UK, I think you're, you're seeing the benefits of a far more measured approach. I mean, throughout this whole process, um, the chief medical officer, the chief science officer have been front and centre. Boris Johnson has been involved, kind of using his stature to kind of put the information out there, but still a kind of very clear measured approach being very open with people about the trade-offs and yep. about the different estimations that are being made. You know, it might make people feel better to say close schools right now, but as a lot of people have pointed out, you know, those children have to be looked after by someone. What if it's their grandparents who start looking after them? So just mm. being very open about the information that has been um, laid out. And I think what we're really seeing is the importance of approaching this in a measured way, not resorting to what is just politically expedient, not just doing what is seen to be doing something. And whilst, you know, who knows where this might move next? Who knows what will prove to be the most effective strategy, at least in the UK at the moment? It feels like things are in a, in a more solid place in that respect. And Dom, you're, you're, you're living in Italy where it feels as if the response has been very extreme, you know, living under conditions that are unheard of in a peacetime democracy. I mean, could you just tell us a bit about what the government has done to contain the virus and, you know, what, it's, what life is like under this lockdown? Well, I think the first point is that at each stage, the decision-making of the government seems to have been driven by fear rather than the facts and rational thinking about what's going on. So the first stage oh. of banning all direct flights from China meant that they weren't containing people who were coming in. There was no way of putting people under quarantine who were coming on indirect flights from other places. We don't yet know how it started, but that seems more like a fear response than actually looking at the spread of the disease. Then the next big stage was shutting down the red zones, including the area where I live, uh, mainly in northern Italy, which included many areas where there were no cases of the virus, which mm. included the village that I live in. And then on Monday evening, the decision to make the whole of Italy a protected zone I also think was pretty stupid, even in terms of containing the virus, because it meant that people who were in the high-risk areas could now travel out of those areas to other areas. Mm. And I don't know if you've seen the update this evening, but again, we've seen an increase of around a 1,000 cases per day for the last three days. We're now up to uh, 15,000 cases and over a 1,000 deaths. So... I think the decision-making, even just in terms of containing the virus, has not achieved that. And give us a sense of you know what you can and can't do under this lockdown. How much does it, does it affect daily life? Well, things have really changed since the weekend. And at the weekend, when we were in the red zone, it felt a bit odd because there were no cases and we could still walk around and people were greeting each other. And it wasn't really a proper lockdown. Now it definitely feels like a proper lockdown because after the new decree last night, as you mentioned in your opening, all bars and restaurants have closed. Lots of other types of businesses have closed down. Some are still open. Um, but the main thing is, you know, to go out of the house, even for a walk, you have to have a document justifying why you can do that. Let, wow. or, or driving. You either have to be travelling for work for a documented health reason or to buy food or for some essential reason. So I went out on my bike today 
to buy some food and I had to take a document with me. If I hadn't had that, I could have been arrested and fined. Mm. And all around the country, people are being arrested and fined. There was an example yesterday of a woman in Padova, which is in the Veneto region where I live. She was out walking her dog and she got denounced and got fined for walking her dog outside of her council area. Mm. There was a hairdresser this morning in my local area that was raided by the police because they had opened and they were fined as well. And people are, are getting imprisoned. And it's really a climate of fear. It really, you know, makes you feel like you're living in, you know, the Soviet Union or some kind of uh, Stalinist or authoritarian uh, dictatorship. It's really frightening. Ella, what are your thoughts? I have to be really honest and say that I genuinely am torn. And I think lots of people are between, you know, when you hear this, the news about the uptick in cases and mm. deaths in somewhere like Italy, you are genuinely afraid. And I think at this point, it would be really wrong and silly to take the approach of that. I think some people have of this is nothing. It's like, you know, it's no different to the flu for most people. What are you worried about? It's pretty scary. But then the other side of me is actually incredibly reassured by what we just listened to before we started recording this podcast from the British government, especially of the idea that whilst this will be really critical and fatal for certain sections of the population, the elderly and people with underlying health conditions, the rest of us have to genuinely, not sound cliched, stay calm mm. and be public spirited in a way that is really important and is and is a small thing like not going to visit your elderly relatives if you think you've got a cold, taking the advice and staying at home. And the thing that I was thinking about why this has become such a difficult thing to talk about and why even though, you know, the, the, the situation that Dominic is describing of the really quite crazy lockdown in Italy, which by all accounts seems to not be working that well if the, yeah. if the death toll keeps rising and there's been criticism of the fact that Italy, the Italian government had this uh, strange approach of relying on temperature sensors at airports at the start and gave them a kind of full sense of security, which allowed the virus to spread. Mm. Um, but also there's here in the UK, there's so many people, journalists and commentators included, actually the worst of them, saying, you know, what is the government doing? Why aren't mm. you closing? Why aren't you acting? Yeah. And actually, it speaks to our broader problem of, I mean, Dominic used the word fear, a kind of culture and a politics of fear, which is if you put aside coronavirus for a second and just think about the things that we've dealt with in the last sort of five, six years, mm -hmm. fear of a Brexit, fear of a climate change, mm. a ramping up of kind of apocalyptic mm. narratives. And all these chickens are coming home to roost, as it were, because rather than, you know, so much discussion about listens to the science, you have the chief medical officer and the chief science officer saying yeah. vastly sensible uh, you know, things that are back based in facts. And yet we're not able to accept that because the narrative is you have to do something, mm -hmm. act, mm. jump the gun. And so I think if, you know, on a broader point, if we're going to learn a lesson from this, it's to put aside the, you know, understandable and genuine feelings of fear that we've all got in our guts and think logically and rationally and coolly about mm. this. And uh, it's not often that we uh, say this on this podcast, but uh, genuinely listen to the experts 
trust the science and essentially stay calm. I, th- I think that's an important point. And I think one of the things that marked out just even watching that press conference was you see the way in which the government is kind of refusing to allow press outrage or mm. press questions to kind of dictate what the next steps would be. All of the questions are, why haven't you acted? You know, not yeah. not why are you doing what you're doing or, you know, necessarily citing any contrary evidence. It's just this kind of sense of demanding that you're being seen to do something. And I think the point about expertise is, is well made. And even though this is a small point, I think one of the things that has slightly irritated me over the course of all of this, we see various people, you know, on the kind of remain side of the argument in the media um, saying to Brexit supporters or people in general, oh, now suddenly you love experts. And yeah. you think this is such a ridiculous kind of view on things. These are the situations in which, of course, you do need to listen to expertise. As Tim Black said on Spike this week, you know, Brexit was not about rejecting the idea of expertise per se. It was mm. about rejecting rule by experts. And I think what was quite striking about that whole um, debate that was going on was how willing people were to use a very deadly virus for the sake of pretty cheap political point scoring. But it's quite clear that, you know, this is a situation which, you know, the idea that panic responses is a positive thing in any way. You know, the clue's in the name, you know, nothing good can come of that. And I'm just hoping that as things go forward, that kind of level of measure that we're seeing um, on behalf of the government will continue. Part of a broader point as well is that however we deal with this now pandemic i think the uk is making the right kind of move staying calm all of that's very good but you do have to think that that's one thing asking people to be public spirited to stay at home if they have a cold or a flu or a temperature and i think people should adhere to that but there is a broader question not to kind of politicize this situation but what happens when you have mass amounts of people who don't have uh steady jobs who are on zero yeah. hours contracts it's a genuine question. What happens to those people? I think that the unfortunate fact of this virus is it's going to really reveal a lot of the shortcomings of the current state of British society. You know, the fact that we have a huge amount of population in unsteady, unstable work and zero hours contracts will mean that there's going to be a big issue. It's no good the government saying we've got a healthy welfare system. That's just utter nonsense. And, you know, there's nothing necessarily good going to come out of this virus. I wouldn't ever try to argue that. But one thing that will come out of it is a lot of questions about Mm. this is going to provoke a lot of kind of thinking about how we organize society it will reveal the difficulties in the nhs that might have fatal consequences but all of these are actually really important questions to look at i I wonder if we could just before moving on talk a bit about the kind of economic impact of the coronavirus and obviously in in britain you know that was a big focus of the of this week's budget but I mean, Dominic, this is really serious for Italy, isn't it? Last night's decree was interesting in that although it closed lots of bars and restaurants and uh, many types of shops, it actually said that core companies, especially manufacturing, should remain open. Although departments mm. that were seen as non-essential, like HR or marketing, should close. Now, that's created a really strange situation today because in the north here, there have been many wildcat strikes today where workers, for example, in a metal workers company, uh, down tools and went out because they said, why aren't we closed? Mm. Why do shop workers matter more than us? So again, the decision last night is causing divisions between different types of employees and a huge wider economic impact has become very clear today because I don't know if you saw that the ECB decided not to change its interest rate and the yeah. Milan bourse uh, went south very quickly and the spread in bonds widened hugely between Italian and German uh, bond yields. So there was this sentiment a few days ago that, you know, maybe declaring a crisis 
pumping in 25 billion euros and that the EU would somehow help out Italy with a bit of a sense that maybe this could be a kind of mechanism for dealing with many of the wider problems. In fact, it's become very, very clear today that that is not the case and that things are are definitely going to get worse, I'm sorry to say. You're listening to The Spike Podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. Does the Labour Party have a problem with free speech? This week, Labour suspended Trevor Phillips, a lifelong anti-racism campaigner and former head of the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Phillips was accused of Islamophobia. The Labour Party is currently being investigated by the EHRC over allegations of anti-Semitism, and people have speculated that this might be to somehow muddy the waters on that investigation. Also this week, Labour members organised a rally against the Labour leadership contenders signing a pledge calling for the expulsion of so-called transphobic members. The Defend Me or Expel Me rally had to keep its location secret, but was still met with protests by trans activists. Tom, do you want to tell us a bit about what's been going on? Certainly. I mean, just in kind of answer to your first question, does the Labour Party have a free speech problem? Yes, definitely, obviously, has done for a very long time. But I think it's kind of interesting to look at the kind of broader political context, these recent kind of battles over Islamophobia with Trevor Phillips, as well as the battle over alleged transphobia with these different groups within the Labour Party. Because at the end of this week, we're in a situation where the Tory party have just delivered what a, a budget which seems to have gone down very well. They're seen as handling this coronavirus situation very well. There was one poll which put the Tories at 50% mm. in the polls. And meanwhile, you have these incredibly cultish kinds of infighting going on within the Labour Party, you know, Mm. expelling Trevor Phillips, someone who's worked on anti-racism his entire career, agree or disagree with the various things that he's done over the years. And you have this increasingly bizarre, it has to be said, argument around transphobia, you know, deputy leadership candidates going on television and talking about how children don't have biological sex. And Mm. I just, it's remarkable that that's where this has ended up, that in a situation in which you would think the Labour Party would be waking up and smelling the coffee and trying to work out how to reconnect with people, they can't help themselves but tumble further and further down these kinds of rabbit holes. And I think that the Trevor Phillips thing, I suppose just quickly on that, the idea that Trevor Phillips is some sort of like raging anti-Muslim bigot is Mm. ridiculous. Everyone knows this. Now, there is this problem with the term Islamophobia insofar as I think to the extent that people are concerned about it because they mean anti-Muslim bigotry, a kind of racialized hatred of Muslims, that of course is something that you'd want to kick someone out of your party if they had that. But that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about that far more nebulous definition of it, the one that just crowds in any discussion of um, issues within the Muslim community or even just issues of particular Islamic doctrine and practice. And again, you can disagree with some of the things Trevor Phillips has said over the years, some of the studies that he cited, which have been proved to be a bit methodologically dodgy, some of the phrases that he's used to try and describe the issues around parallel communities or other things like this. That's all fine. But to suggest that he is some kind of anti-Muslim bigot, I think is frankly ridiculous. And the fact that there's no space for someone of those views within the Labour Party, I think speaks how censorious it is, but also just how out of whack it is with the mainstream discussion. I think this week has really hammered that home in a lot of ways. Ella? It's quite incredible that it's happened to Trevor Phillips because 
he has supported the free speech union that's just been set up with Toby Young. And, you know, in a matter of, I think it was what, a week and a half or something, yeah. unless um, he gets banned by his party. So it's, it's like Toby Young made this up. Yeah, like, yeah. It's quite <laughs> incredible. But it's actually a really, I mean, I'm sure it's not very pleasant for Trevor Phillips to go through this, but it's actually a really interesting example of the complexities and the problem with censorship, not just in the Labour Party, but in this instance. Because, you know, there are things that I disagree with, with Trevor Phillips in relation to his sort of thesis on Islamophobia. And as, interestingly, it sort of has boiled down to this rather academic debate about whether or not it is racism yeah. and how you define it. And when he was interviewed on the Today programme, you actually ended up listening to him thinking he sounded eminently sensible and what was the problem. But, you know, as Tom said, I think he does to uh, a great extent put too much emphasis on the idea of there being sort of different pockets of communities isolated from themselves. I mean, even just based on anecdotal experience, I think there is an issue with radicalization in this country in mm. certain sections of society, um, in certain sections of, of Muslim society. But the vast majority of Muslim young people that I know, yes, they uh, have a faith, but also they transgress it as, as much as I transgress being brought up as a Catholic. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a new generation as much more liberal, as much more open, all these things are to be taken into account. So you can have a discussion and a disagreement with his views. But the really interesting thing is about how they've so been taken out of context. Mm. Uh, and that's the key thing. Even the context of him as an individual doesn't matter. You know, his history, what he's done, his track record. People always talk about, you know, what have you done for the anti-racist cause? And, you know, Trevor Phillips more so than others has done a huge amount. Uh, and is famous for it. It's built a career out of it. So the fact that this has been completely taken out of context and even just bits of his comments have been stripped out and used um, individually is a really important thing. I mean, I read a great article by Matthew Side in the Times this week where he talked about his own experience mm. of having quotes from his articles uh, and the things that he'd said taken out in just these small little extracts and, and people basically ignoring the context of the situation. A another just really interesting thing during his interview on the Today programme, uh, Trevor Phillips was pinned and, you know, this, there was this argument saying that you are completely on board with the condemnation of anti-Semitism. Mm. You have not said anything about that, but you've got a problem with Islamophobia and you've got a problem with the definition of Islamophobia. And actually, and this is a great point, Trevor came back and said, no, I've, I actually in both cases have rejected the idea of defining these things because quite often it comes down to this idea of whether it be anti-Semitism, Islamophobia or any kind of bigotry, the kind of nailed down definition mm. of not only it being the definition being really quite broad, but also it being focused on perception rather than intent. So it's all about how the offended person perceives what you've said rather than what the accused mm. has actually meant. And you end up with this ridiculous situation in which you have a famous uh, campaigner against discrimination being accused uh, as essentially being a bigot. But I think we've got a lot to learn from this case. I, th I think what, one thing, you know, when you do compare it to anti-Semitism, what's interesting is is not only the speed with which Trevor Phillips seems to have been ejected. Labour's Jenny Formery said it was, you know, a matter of urgency, you know, mm. a matter of protecting the party's reputation that it, that it got rid of Trevor Phillips over his um, Islamophobia. And whereas, you know, if it's the case of anti-Semitism, there seems to be a, a lot more reluctance to, to make that kind of move. And, you know, there have been these rows over the definition of, of anti-Semitism in, in the Labour Party. And I think that's, that's a legitimate row. People are, you know, people are perhaps right to say that that's a threat to free speech. 
But it is obviously interesting that that's the only case yeah. in which Labour members suddenly get their backs up about free speech. They can, they're unable to see that there is a common problem with the definition of Islamophobia. Mm. You know, it clearly points to a kind of double standard in, in, in how we talk about racism. Oh, definitely. And I think it's just so striking that the only point at which um, people on the Labour left in particular pipe up about free speech is when it's their right to call Israel a racist state. Mm. You know, that's the only thing that seems to rankle them. And whether or not you think on its own terms that statement is legitimate or not, I think that tells you something, as you were alluding to there. I think it's interesting just in terms of Trevor Phillips' comments being taken out of context and all the rest of it, because there are particular things that you might take issue with. But, you know, some of the statements in particular sound almost kind of multicultural in some respects. This is one of the confusing situations we find ourselves in, this point about how Muslim communities are different in the same way, you know, we can't expect people to integrate because people are different. That's the multicultural idea writ large. And I think it's kind of also connects with a kind of interesting irony in relation to this, which Patrick West has written about on Spike this week. Uh, which is the fact that um, Trevor Phillips himself was obviously instrumental in, in introducing the term Islamophobia to British political discourse. He yep. was chair of the Runnymede Trust. He put out this report in 1997, um, really bringing this definition to the fore. So I think it's really quite interesting insofar as a lot of people who had previously, shall we say, not necessarily recognised the danger with some of these terms, with some of these boo words, the point at which they could become, in the case of Islamophobia in particular, kind of backdoor blasphemy law, the way in which you can demonise certain levels of discussion, are now beginning to get bitten by it. And it's just so clear that the reason people are up in arms about it, I don't, I genuinely don't think anyone from the Muslim Council of Britain down, and there's a lot of problems with that organisation, genuinely believe he is some sort of racist. It's purely because he is raising things which are difficult, which are inconvenient, whether it's the grooming gangs phenomenon or anything else, that they want to shut down discussion of that. So whatever you might take issue with, individual claims he's made, studies he's cited, studies he's taken part of, whatever, it's quite clear that that's what's pushing this. And it's just so strange and I think um, bad for Labour that they are part of that kind of that move to clamp down discussion in this area because the more that you do clamp down this discussion the more likely it is to get heated the more likely yeah. it is to be exploited by people who aren't Trevor Phillips who don't have good intent in their mm. heart necessarily so I think that's been a pretty depressing part of all this as well and the other row rumbling on over free speech is over this trans pledge which has culminated in a big rally this week with lots of kind of feminist feminist labor members Ella do you want to talk a bit about that well it was interesting I was looking at uh, Twitter and a comment from Eddie Dempsey, who is a, a trade unionist and an activist and a Labour supporter, though has fallen foul of the Labour Party a number of times over some of his other views on Brexit, um, wrote this tweet that just really hit home, which said, you know, I've told you once, I've told you many times that the Tory party is going to clean up on its working class support that it's garnered in the general election because the Labour Party keeps pushing this identity politics bollocks. And I don't think he quite said that, but essentially that was what he was saying. (laughs) And he's so right because on a broader point, what is any ordinary voter thinking when they watch Lisa Nandy stumble through a very awkward and incoherent defence of the idea that no, there isn't man and woman, there is a whole spectrum and, you know, sounding like she can't muster the ability to even believe what she's saying. And what message does that send to your average voter who doesn't like, unfortunately, like we do, watch all the iterations of this on Twitter and up Mm -hmm. to speed with the latest in the row? You just think, what on earth are you talking about? But it is actually quite a serious issue because this isn't just a spat between, you know, radical feminists on the one hand and trans activists on the other. This is actually about truth when it comes down to it and about values. 
And what's happened in this row of the Labour Party and its censorious attack on anyone who basically disagrees with the idea that trans women are women and gender is a spectrum and, you know, everyone can be anything at any time is is they've essentially thrown women under a bus. Mm. And, you know, for a party that previously had a reputation or attempted to to claim that it had a reputation for being on the side of the oppressed or the marginalized, or I mean, not that women particularly have been that in the in the past few years. It's a real step change, I think. And I think they're really going to suffer from it because this just feels like stupid student politics. The problem is it's not stupid student politics. It's the opposition party <laughs> essentially digging its own grave. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher and more. And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. Social media can be a horrible place. Following the tragic suicide of Caroline Flack, a hashtag emerged urging social media users to be kind. In politics, MPs and activists talk constantly about the abuse they face online. But while it might seem self-evident that it's good to be kind, are there not double standards on which abuse gets called out and which insults are tolerated? Ella, you wrote an interesting piece on this this week. Do you want to tell us about that case? Yeah, so, I mean, this has been a phenomenon for a while, this idea that actually it's liberal lefties who are the nastiest online, despite the fact that they're the ones that are always calling for, you know, kinder, gentler politics. And, you know, you sometimes think about that with a little bit of scepticism. You think, well, I've met quite a few nasty right wingers in my time and what's going on here. But there are moments when that claim, that stereotype gets validated. And one of them was this week when the Tory MP Nadine Dorries announced that she was positive for coronavirus. I mean, she's of a certain age and more worryingly that she was living with her very elderly mother, um, who she was genuinely worried about and had mm. to go into self-isolation. That's doesn't matter about what side of the political debate you're on. That's a terrible situation to be in. And while there was lots of people who were wishing her well, there was also a significant amount of people on social media who were Labour supporters or certainly anti-Tories who were coming up with some rather nasty stuff. And in particular, people have picked up on this one individual, Guy Matthews, who was sort of the face of the Labour Voices campaign, mm. had his uh, video put all over social media the uh, last year during the election, tweeted saying stuff like, you know, oh, effing get in. I hope that... <laughs> This virus goes through her rotten bastard party like a dose of salts and, you know, pretty nasty. And other people comparing her to Ian Huntley and saying, well, you wouldn't feel sorry if for Ian Huntley if he got mm. it. Some, you know, unpleasant stuff. And even mainstream politicians like Angela Rayner, who rather than just saying, get well, uh, Nadine said, oh, I absolutely do not agree with Nadine Dorries on anything, but I still wish her well. And, you know, it's like that old thing that uh, every mum tells her kids, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Don't caveat these things. You're well wishing with a, a political dig. And, you know, there are other examples that I can think of, you know, particular politicians like Jess Phillips or commentators mm. like uh, Jolly and Morham, the QC who battered a fox recently, who constantly are talking about the idea of the, the nasty party, the Tories who want to, you know, 
see the death of everyone on a certain wage and the media is awful and there's a culture of bullying and social media is terrible for women who are particularly unpleasant mm. again and again on social media. My point of view on it is I think that we should be allowed to be nasty occasionally. Yeah. And actually there are several times where they're the only correct political response to someone is to tell them to get stuffed. Mm. But the idea that there's this sort of tr moral trading with the idea of kindness and that you have to enforce kindness. Yeah. You know, you bring up the spectre of Caroline Flack, you bring up the spectre of Joe Cox, you say, be warned, be kind, or, you, or people are going to die. You can't enforce kindness. Yeah. What you can say is, can we all stop being so childish, please? Mm. It was funny because the thing that the Be Kind campaign reminded me of was a tweet by a police force a few years ago, which basically ordered social media users it said think before you post oh, is glasgow it necessary police, yeah. glasgow police think before you post and you know some of the things you should think about is is it necessary and is it kind <laughs> <laughs> you know the idea that the the police might be monitoring your tweets to see if you've been if you've been nice to a politician mm. today when you're expressing your anger about the budget or whatever it might be mm. is is incredibly chilling but tom what's your thoughts no, completely. I think this kind of thing about be kind, the kind of ostentatious virtue, you know, it's kind of connected with the virtue signaling phenomenon and all the rest of it. You need to be very suspicious of those kinds of people. It's, mm. a, bit, it's a bit like male feminists, you know, <laughs> who have a scientifically proven 200% chance more likelihood to be sex offenders, in my yeah. view and experience. <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, it's still this, the more people appeal to kind of be kind, the more often they seem to have obvious double standards. I think mm. the Jolien Moore thing was really interesting, him going on uh, the Today programme this week, talking about the Twitter storm that erupted after he announced on Boxing Day that he just clubbed a fox to death um, and saying that he'd found himself in the middle of a hate storm and invoked Caroline Flack, basically yeah. implied that he might have gone the same way, you know, had he not had the support network around him. Um, this is a man who, you know, in particular dragged Darren Grimes through the courts, a young campaigner for Brexit, who it turns out had done nothing wrong, but just, mm. you know, for the sake of trying to score points against Brexit, launched this very long campaign against him. Um, so he wasn't being kind then, was he? And that's, I think, a quite interesting aspect to all of this. Um, I think the point Ella made in a, in a piece this week was very well made, which is to say that the response to this should not be this kind of tone policing. It should not be, again, trying to almost, you know, it's like another level of virtue signaling yeah. <laughs> to sort of try and say that all the be kind people should um, actually watch their own behaviour. But it's two things. On the one hand, people need to have thick skins because politics, and particularly politics on social media, is always going to expose you to some nastiness. Anyone mm. can get on there. Anyone can message you. That's just the way these things work, particularly on Twitter. But at the same time, to recognise that it isn't just about asserting that you're right, about asserting your virtue. You have to argue. You have to make your case. You shouldn't resort to ad hominems and you shouldn't use social media as a kind of you know, just situation in which you're just, again, constantly tr trying to shame people because that is not actually really politics. That's just a kind of, you know, competition for moral virtue. So those two things at the same time, let's toughen up. But at the same time, let's also just treat this as an adult conversation, an adult debate about these things, which I think would, that would probably be better than be kind in many respects. You've been listening to The Spiked Podcast. For more Spike content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.